I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many beats on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars
problem that farming faced going into the Second World War was really a legacy of the First World War and the subsequent years of depression that agriculture had been suffering in Britain. And really there were problems of lack of investment, problems of lack of confidence. A lot of farmers really didn't feel they had the confidence to plan their production, that they were going to get fair prices for the inputs they uh, were placing in their, uh, into their industry. And so there was a, a real problem about ensuring that farming was as productive, as efficient as it, as it should be. And some of the practical implications of this were that a lot of land was simply left fallow during the late 1930s. You've got this big problem which affected particularly some of the traditional arable areas, especially in East Anglia, where it just wasn't economically viable for farmers to be ploughing the land and putting it down to crops. It was better for them simply to put it, leave it to rough grazing and some areas, particularly horticulture, some parts of fruit farming, small-scale livestock production, dairying indeed. Some of these areas were actually quite buoyant during the war but a lot of the publicity went to what was going on in wheat farming in particular and that was taken as a kind of talisman really for uh, the fate fate of the industry as a whole. So one of the big challenges going into the war was to turn this around to try and bring land back into active cultivation, try to restore confidence um, and simply get agriculture rising to the challenge of, of making good the loss in food imports uh, which the war uh, obviously entailed.
You're listening to Bill's Bag of Big Onions. Big Bag of Bill's Onions. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. By the end of the 18th century, there were a small number of voluntary, that that is charitable, uh, asylums um, which uh, continued this idea and developed the idea of moral treatment, which meant humane treatment, not using um, uh, restraint or punishment, but giving people a healthy and encouraging environment in which they could recover their, their sanity. Now, what then happened, because some of these were perceived as being um, quite successful and the most famous one is the York Retreat which was run by the Quaker Tuke family in York. It was felt that this should become treatment that was available to everybody including paupers, including you know, the, dis- the destitute and the impoverished. And so from 1815, local counties were allowed to build asylums and this began quite slowly and a small number of uh, these were actually Britain's first state hospitals rather than charitable hospitals. Uh, A small number of asylums were built around the country. Um, It really started to take off in the 1840s when uh, new legislation actually required um, counties to uh, build asylums. And um, by the end of the century, there were over 300 of these institutions, uh, many of them uh, housing uh, a thousand people or more. So there was a very big shift towards institutional asylum provision over that period. This has got nothing to do with onions. There is no bag and I might not be Bill, but something's big.
we have to look really back at the 19th century to understand where the Women's Social and Political Union and various other associated militant suffragette organisations actually came from. And in 1832, the, under the Reform Act, women were effectively locked out of the political system for the first time because the clause actually said that the vote was given to a certain number, a certain number of male persons. Now, during the 19th century, various individuals and organisations tried to raise consciousness as to you know, what votes for women. And uh, for instance, John Stuart Mill, the political thinker, campaigned for women's rights and women's voices. Uh, and then we also see a link, especially at the end of the 19th century, towards women uh, and political disenfranchisement and sexual and gender inequality. So for instance, in the 1860s, there was a campaign, it was actually the 1860s, the Contagious Diseases Act were brought in by the government. And this was to control uh, prostitutes in various port towns. And they actually forcibly examined prostitutes. Uh, and this was, many feminist critics at the time said, well, this was actually an anti-women policy devised by the men in power. Okay. So at that time, there was a link. And this link continued with the Women's Social and Political Union, this link between women's sexual uh, discrimination and the lack of the vote and the lack of the voice.
You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. 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 I think one of the problems of, if you like, the oral history fashion, which has mm. come about, really started, I suppose, in the, roughly around the 1980s, is that it's great if you're just talking about contemporary documents like, say, letters or particular diaries, which is the best of the lot. But interviews with old soldiers are always going to be, should we say, less dependable. Partly because, not that they're in any way being deliberately dishonest, but partly because they have filtered their own experiences through what they have read since and what they have discussed with other people. So it's, should we say, slightly contaminated material, not for any fault of theirs. And also a question of memory. I mean, we know how unreliable human memory is in many ways. The importance, for example, of the American documents, and this was fantastic that the Americans had the resources and the foresight to do it, was that they had these teams of combat historians who went in with the troops and to interview the troops as they were coming out of battle very soon afterwards, mm. when their memories were still fresh. This has been a resource which has been around for a long time, but has actually really hardly been used at all by historians, which I find astonishing. But anyway, the official historians, American historians, historians who were I think outstandingly good use this as background material but they never quoted from any any of it so that was a huge resource and lots of other interviews done very soon afterwards create a sort of if you like a huge body of material and there's no need in fact to go to interviews with soldiers and veterans 50 years 60 years now it's almost 70 years 65 years after the event Georgia didn't feel just right She had fever all day and chills at night Now things got worse, yes, a serious bind In times like this, it takes a man with a style Like getting out of a vine A doctor of the heart and a doctor of the mind
FM with Bill. There had never been any serious cases of heresy in the British Isles. The bishops who were given responsibility for investigating the affair weren't terribly excited. Of course, they'd been working alongside the Templars, as had, as had the King's officials, and they must have known that they hadn't been up to anything suspicious. In theory, the Templars' houses were private, but in practice, the testimonies that are given during the trial of the British Isles indicate that anyone could walk into a Templars' house any hour of the day and night and demand lodging, or walk into the chapel and expect to be able to pray in the church. If anything strange had been going on, these people would have known about it. So there's this seems to be definitely cynicism and yet a recognition that the Pope is not going to let them get off with this. They've got to do something, but as slowly and as unwillingly as possible. Mm. As in, we've got to tick the boxes here, but oh no. More demands from Rome, oh dear. So, so what happened? Well, initially, the King of England, Edward II, the son of the famous Edward I who'd conquered Wales and tried to conquer Scotland, Edward II, unusually for him, stood up and said, I'm not going to do this. Edward is not known for standing up against people. But on this occasion, he said, I deny the Templars are guilty of heresy. They have always served the King of England well. And he wrote to his relatives abroad, and he said, we must stop this. It's quite obviously untrue.
of a landholder living at Westerhanger Castle uh, in Kent. And uh, like uh, other wealthy single women of the period, I have to say, was very much prey to unscrupulous claimants to her land, uh, her possessions, and perhaps also her hand. Um, So in her petition, she described how a local knight called John Cornwall had tried repeatedly to force his way into her castle. And the ruses that he undertook are very colourful indeed. He disguised himself as a friar, hoping no doubt to get into the castle and persuade her to give her confession to him. He also dressed up his own henchmen as her servants uh, in in a deliberate attempt, as it were, to, to put off the doorkeeper and get access to the castle. When all of those failed, he brought a band of up to about 60 men to the castle who, according to Lettice, scaled the walls and beat down the doors and windows. And on the most recent occasion that she recounted, Lettice tells us how she had been forced, in fact, to hide in the castle moat for four hours in order to evade capture. It's a small miracle, really, that she uh, actually survived such an experience. So clearly she was in dire straits in the summer of 1378 when she made her petition. It's just onion after onion.
higher social strata or the the traditional groups that had enjoyed high social status but perhaps saw themselves as being uh, threatened by new upwardly mobile groups uh, wanted to demarcate their status vis-a-vis these lower strata or especially the sort of nouveau riche strata so they often laid down what clothing you could wear if you were of a particular social rank um, and forbade people below that rank uh, to wear things like fancy furs or imported textiles or to invite more than 12 people to their weddings. So really, sumptuary laws were often quite lax for better off people, for courtiers, for members of the nobility, but quite strict for people, peasants, ordinary artisans. Sometimes the elite used them against one another, so um, there would be uh, a tendency for uh, people who were, uh, for example, the a village vicar might try to use the sumptuary regulations against another member of the professional classes who he saw as, in a sense, um, challenging his monopoly over what it meant to be an educated professional living in a in a village so although the sumptuary ordinances were often used by higher social strata against lower ones that was only one of many motivations sometimes the higher social strata used them against each other
standard historian operates is to take a body of evidence and with the background of what he knows about uh, the, the life and times etc is to interpret that body of evidence. I come from the other end, I come from the, the point of view of what questions could we possibly ask about the past? What do you clean your teeth with? And then I go and look for the evidence that gives me the best way of answering that question. So it only works if you've got a very good knowledge of the sources available. Um, but fortunately, I've uh, been doing this for a number of years now. I have a PhD in the, uh, the, the, the social history of the early modern period. I worked for the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts, which my role there was very much advising people how to do research. So I've got a, a good head start when it comes to answering these questions. Uh, what I would like to know is the, the uh, which I haven't yet managed to find, I'm sure it's there somewhere, is the formal etiquette for presenting yourself to the Queen. And I know about how people did it in the Middle Ages and the formal ways of uh, kneeling uh, as people approached, for example, Edward III or Henry V, but I haven't yet come across anybody uh, uh, stipulating uh, exactly how you should behave when you are presented to the Queen. I'm sure there are sources out there, but in the limited time I've had to research this, that was one question I really wanted to know which I wasn't able to answer.
Well, we're we're in the long gallery, which is, as it sounds, like a long room, and it has floor-to-ceiling linen fold panelling. So that's oak panelling that's carved to look like the folds of a cloth linen. And what's distinct about this? 
Long Gallery is that these panels are beautifully carved with signs of heraldry, coats of arms and devices of all the people that the person who built this house knew in the 1520s. So it has this incredible quality of being a kind of visual who's who of Tudor England. Everybody that William Lord Sands, who was the builder, knew is represented on the walls here. There were a few medieval buildings here, but really Sands made this house. He created a very large house. What we have now is a very small version of the original. Sands was a courtier under Henry VII and under Henry VIII, and it's under Henry VIII that he really rose. He became um, Knight of the Garter, he was created a baron, and he was given uh, a position at court that he had great authority. So that he also had a lot of money, and he came to the vine to build himself a house that reflected that wealth and status and this room is one of many rooms that did that by displaying his connections and his wealthy associates.
You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. In theory, the way the system worked was that you employed customs officers, as you do today, who, who police the ports, collect revenue and prevent people from lading or unlading goods illicitly. The difficulty was that if those customs officials are corrupt, if they are venal, if they take money payments to look the other way, then it's it's quite difficult to, you know, to, to know where you go from there. And you might say, well, the answer is to appoint honest customs officers. And the Crown, you know, they did figure that out. But the trouble was that the way even the appointment of customs officers worked is that it really militated against the appointment of honest men. I mean, this is because to get become made a customs officer, you actually had to buy your post from the Lord Treasurer. And a post is treated as a saleable commodity. Once yeah. you've used it, you can sell it on to somebody else. But if it, even if you weren't able to do that, that you actually had to buy your post from a Lord Treasurer, um, if it was like a vacant post. And um, you know, basically, the Lord Treasurers clearly seem to have been prepared to accept, you know, those people who paid them the most money for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one really good example from Bristol in the 1590s concerns. Uh, the searcher ship of Bristol, which is a kind of the main person who's responsible for trying to stop ships from being laded or unladed illicitly. And uh, there's an application from a noted Bristol privateer, in fact, who wants to be made searcher of Bristol. He writes to uh, Lord Burley, uh, the Lord Treasurer, who's also, and everyone knows Burley, he's, he's Elizabeth's main man, he's the chief minister in the realm. And um, he offers him £300. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio.